0: So I am presenting Ethiopia's Stretched Hands, the Calvinistic zeal of 18th century Afro-Atlantic writers. So that's a mouthful. As we'll see, all of that will make sense and fit together soon enough. But what I'm getting at here is in the 18th century, so that's the time of the first Great Awakening, you could think of some figures we'll get into, uh, particularly Jonathan Edwards and George Whitefield. While they were doing all that kind of stuff and British evangelicalism on both sides of the Atlantic was expanding, there were a lot of uh, Africans, both in Africa and the American South and the American uh, Northeast, in Canada, in the Caribbean, who had to navigate religious questions. And a lot of them eventually found themselves at home in Calvinistic evangelicalism, so in the tradition of either Edwards or Whitfield. So we're going to talk about those people, and I'm going to be sharing about some of the questions they had to navigate and how that shaped their spirituality and how that shaped their broader interaction with the religious landscape. So first, I want to set the tone and give you some context of what was going on during that time. So uh, race and Christianity in the 18th century. So on screen, I have some graphic pictures, but those are popular pictures that speak to some notable events and organizations so that first one on the left there uh as you can see that uh it shows uh sailors throwing an enslaved african overboard that was the zong massacre so that took place in 1781 and that's when on a ship oh. sorry oh okay to redo it no it's still it froze at the first slide redo it real fast oh oh okay Oh, I see. Oh, wait, it's back. Wait, wait, okay, we're back. We're back. Thank you. Okay, that's good to know. Okay, so that's the, the Zong. Ooh, ooh, I think I'm clicking stuff here. That's the Zong Massacre. 130 um, enslaved Africans were thrown overboard. And that was one of the big events that bought, brought the question of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade and the Middle Passage and all those things to the Brit- British public in a big way. The second event there was when a ship's captain took an enslaved African teenager, a young woman, uh, hung her up, tortured her, and eventually killed her. And that was in the 1790s. And that was the first case where a a ship's captain was charged in the killing of a slave. So you could see that things were progressing in the end of the 18th century where uh, public awareness was being raised and uh, people were being charged. So that was an increasing awareness. And in that last picture, the fruit of this awareness, and the evangelical activism that would come out of it, that right there is a symbol, that right, rightmost image. Uh, in the caption, it's cut off. It says, am I not a man and a brother? But that became the symbol of the largely evangelical, largely reformed evangelicals, so Anglican, Congregationalist, Presbyterian, a group of evangelicals who were fighting against the slave trade, and that became their symbol. So in the 18th century, you had a lot of Christians and a lot of evangelicals on both sides of the question of slavery. But this was in a landscape where slavery was becoming the foremost debated issue in the British Empire and the Anglosphere as a whole. So America, Canada, the, the UK, and so on. So that that's what's going on in terms of context. But if I can slide that. We also know that evangelicalism had a lot going on at that same time. So... On screen here, I have some faces that might be familiar. You have Jonathan Edwards, the big photo. Then in the top right, you have George Whitfield and Selena Hastings. So these represent leaders in the Reformed or Calvinistic evangelical sphere. So you think of Jonathan Edwards among Congregationalists in New England, George Whitfield on both sides of the Atlantic, but especially in the American South, where he's doing a lot of preaching and has his orphanage in Georgia. And then Selena Hastings, she would become the leader of the the official sort of Calvinistic Methodist group in England, the the Countess of Huntington, that was her, her title. She would have a connection of Methodists who were closely associated with Calvinistic Anglicans who were evangelical, and those Methodists that would eventually break off. But what makes this a unique issue in question is, while these were definitely theological heroes, as some of you would know, is that Jonathan Edwards owned slaves, he purchased slaves, George Whitfield actually pushed for slavery in Georgia, so it was illegal in Georgia, and George Whitfield pushed for it to be legalized. And Selina Hastings, upon the death of George Whitfield, inherited the slaves he owned. So there, there were some big questions about evangelicalism's relationship with slavery, especially among Calvinists, where not only were they not indifferent to the slave trade, in certain cases they owned slaves or even pushed for slavery's legalization. Of course, we can complicate that picture while... Whitfield owned slaves and pushed for slavery uh, to be legalized in Georgia. He also got himself into big trouble when he spoke out against the cruel treatment of slaves. So you could see lots of gray area, lots of questions, lots of moral evil, but some moral good. How do we make sense of this? And while I would suggest we have to make sense of that, of course, during the time, there were lots of uh, enslaved Africans or recently freed Africans who had to navigate these questions as they embraced evangelicalism. So I want to introduce you to uh, three figures, two of whom we'll really stick with for the rest of the time, but I'll go from uh, left to right on my screen. On the leftmost side in that portrait in a book, we have Olauda Equiano, a name you might be familiar with. In the middle, we have John Morant, and on the right, we have Phyllis Wheatley. I could give you their dates, but just to summarize, they're all born uh, and die in the end of the 18th century, so from the 1750s to 1790s. That's when these people are around. And what makes them interesting is that they were all raised in the tradition of Whitfield. So Ola Ola Uda Aquiano uh, came to faith after his incredible travels and uh, 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 being captured according to his story in West Africa, traveling the world as a slave, uh, purchases his freedom. And eventually he becomes an evangelical closely associated with uh, evangelical Anglicanism and Methodism, Calvinistic Methodism in England. John Morant, likewise in England, connected with the Countess of Huntington, but he becomes an important Calvinistic Methodist in both New England and in Nova Scotia, where he uh, ministers. And then thirdly, on the right, we won't touch on her too much, but I just wanted to show some of the diversity and acknowledge a big name. That's Phyllis Wheatley, again, uh, in the tradition of Whitfield, very active in the States, and actually the first African-American published with her, with her poem, poetry set. And the Countess of Huntington really supported that and moved that forward. So those are our three big figures. I'm sorry if you lose, uh, lose the screen here. Just want to make sure. I, yep, okay, perfect. So I want to talk about the two figures, Ola Uda Equiano and John Morant, because what makes them unique and really stand out in this period, and of course gives us something to talk about, is that both of these men as Calvinistic evangelicals, but also as uh, Black people living in the 18th century in this crazy world, they left us two autobiographies, largely in the genre of slave narrative. Ola Uda Equiano is definitely a slave narrative. Morant was actually born free, but pulling very much on that genre. Both of these left us, and I have the names on the screen, two incredible autobiographies. So I'll read them out. The first, and you might have heard of this one, is the interesting narrative of the life of Olauda Equiano or Gustavus Vasa the African. And the second, and not as well known and much shorter, is a narrative of the Lord's wonderful dealings with John Morant, a black. So, interesting titles. Both are very interesting works. But what makes them interesting is that both these people, uh, both Equiano and Morant, were navigating life and faith and the crazy world that was the late. 18th century as Calvinistic evangelicals living in a world where it wasn't always safe to be a black individual. And even in your church space, you had to navigate people who might advocate for the enslavement of your people or would uh, advocate for the abolition of the slave trade. So interesting times. What makes these slave narratives particularly worth exploring is that what I argue and have argued in uh, some papers and conferences is that The autobiographies are didactic. So what does that mean? Equiano and Morant, they tell their story to teach with a purpose. So the purpose, ultimately, in both their stories is to advocate for Africans. Specifically in Equiano's, it's an abolitionist story. Equiano tells his story, gives brutal details about his enslavement, his travels, all for the purpose of promoting abolition. So in his text, he writes explicitly, he is sort of in a preface, giving his autobiography to the British Parliament to ignite their compassion on this, for the sake of his enslaved countrymen. So they have a purpose, abolition. And they also want to draw interest in. So no one's going to read your abolitionist work unless it's interesting. So both Morant and Equiano, like many other works, they emphasize travel. So Morant will talk about traveling to England, then to Nova Scotia, then to Boston. Equiano, who really traveled the world. He'll talk about his travels to the West Indies, the American South, England, the Mediterranean, uh, back to uh, the Mosquito Coast, which is in modern day Honduras and Nicaragua. And they are generating interest by telling their stories in a particular sensationalized way. So we can't lose that. But thirdly, the slave narratives also acted as spiritual autobiographies And in many ways, in this religiously charged landscape of the Great Awakening and, of course, the beginning, it's still uh, 50 years early, but the beginning of Victorian sensibilities, which would be passed down during the actual time of Victoria, by laying themselves out as Christians and talking about their spiritual journeys and their spiritual redemption stories, those were actually ways of establishing credibility. Hey, I want to tell my abolition story. I want you to hear it. I will gain your interest by talking about my travel but you should actually listen to me because I am a brother. I am a Christian and my story is impactful. And this ties in where scholars today reading these narratives will recognize they were telling their spiritual autobiographies through their slave narratives for multiple purposes, ranging from uh, establishing credibility. But both these men as Calvinistic evangelicals had the interest of evangelizing their readers, whether they were Christians in need of encouragement. Here's a testimony which we're familiar with sharing your testimony to encourage or also as sharing your testimony to evangelize your readers what that purpose of if a reader reads your account sees God's work is converted their presumption is as through an evangelical born again experience you're going to take up evangelical activism you're going to do good works and that brings it back to the purpose of abolition so two interesting Calvinistic evangelicals both of them uh, descending from enslaved Africans. Equiano was an enslaved African, writing these incredible narratives. So what were they actually doing in these narratives? So I would argue that in these narratives, when it comes to their spirituality, were presented in both Equiano and Morant, an Orthodox and Evangelical Calvinism. So I encourage you, you can read these works on your own time. I'll summarize. But if you were to pick up either Morant or Equiano's text, Both of them carry with them, as they tell their stories, a strong sense of providence. So you could see it throughout every big movement in their lives, all the way down to the little ones. They believe that this is directly God carrying them, moving them, shaping their destiny for a purpose. And especially in Morantz, you'll see Edwardian language all over the place. He'll talk about the Lord being pleased to do different things, very much pulling from Edwards' way of speaking. Both of them in their text emphasize the need for new birth, the born again experience. That's evangelical Calvinism through and through. And you really see that in the next point in their conversion stories. As we'll look at in a moment, both of their conversion stories have a heavy emphasis upon irresistible grace. I think I actually wrote out some quotes here. Hopefully I don't lose my screen. Uh, Just shout out if I lost my screen here. Uh, One moment here. I think it's worth reading. Yes. Okay. So let me tell you how Morant uh, came to faith. So it's so interesting. Morant, he was uh, born in New York. He travels down to the American South with his family. He's a free black man. He's trying to make some money. So he becomes a musician and he becomes an amazing musician. One day he's traveling uh, in South Carolina. He's traveling to a musical gig as this free black man, but he's caught in the ways of sin. He says in his text that. Being into music in this era, it opened up all sorts of vice. Where would you be playing music? At the saloons, at the taverns, at the public houses, places where sin is rampant, vice is rampant, and he fell into that world. So one day, as he's traveling to uh, a musical gig, Morant writes that uh, one of his friends he was traveling with challenges him, hey, there's a meeting in a room over there. Why don't you play your instrument and disrupt that meeting? And Morant, being a sinner who loves to sin, says, "Yeah, I'll disrupt that meeting. That sounds fantastic." But at this meeting, preaching was none other, and it's so amazing. George Whitfield, what are the chances of that? And this is a direct quote from Morant. He says, "Just as Mr. Whitfield was naming his text and looking round, and as I thought directly upon me, and pointing with his finger, he uttered these words: "Prepare to meet thy God." oh, Israel. So, providentially, he walks into this room with the intention of disrupting gospel preaching. Whitfield happens to be preaching, turns around at the room, points at Morant and says, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Morant then, he reports that he falls into this, like, just this amazing spiritual stupor. He collapses to the ground, he faints, and eventually, Whitfield himself sends a minister to comfort him, And then in this moment of the minister sent by Whitfield to Morant, who is still recovering from this uh, spiritual experience, Morant writes, The Lord was pleased to set my soul at perfect liberty. And being filled with joy, I began to praise the Lord immediately. My sorrows were turned into peace and joy and love. So Morant, strong sense of providence. Whitfield happened to be there. He's telling the story, emphasizing his need for new birth. He was a sinner who was sinning for the sake of sin, but he needed to be born again. And then what happens, this brilliant conversion story where it ends with the Lord striking him down, but then raising him up and setting him at peace, joy, and love. Similarly, Equiano shares his story much longer, but Equiano, and I'm quoting Equiano, says his journey was being determined in his own strength to be a first-rate Christian. So Equiano, very much a story of works-based salvation versus free grace. And Equiano similarly writes, upon his conversion, he was meditating upon Acts, trying to be this good Christian, trying to earn his salvation. But in that moment, while studying the text, he writes, the Lord was pleased to break in upon my soul with his bright beams of heavenly light. And in an instant, as it were, removing the veil and letting light into a dark place, I saw clearly with the eye of faith, the crucified Savior bleeding on the cross on Mount Calvary. So, There was an orthodox and evangelical Calvinism deeply embedded into this text. And that reflects the reality that Equiano and Morant, while being Africans who were clearly second second class citizens, if citizens at all, they were thoroughly aware of their theology. They read Edwards, they listened to Whitfield, they knew what was around them. They knew the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism and were decidedly Calvinistic. And they chose to make that explicit in their text. How come? Well, as I said, on the one hand, They wanted to teach. They wanted to teach their readers about these doctrines, to lay them out, to present them winsomely. But on the other hand, as they also were aware, and this is where scholars spend most of their time, is that when most of your money and support comes from people like Whitfield and Selina Hastings, people who own slaves and their extended network, there was also an element of wanting to demonstrate your orthodoxy, wanting to demonstrate your Calvinism so that you could keep gaining their support, so that you wouldn't have to worry about your funds. So there's a side of genuine, devout interest, which scholars also agree on. These guys were genuinely evangelical Calvinists who wanted to share their faith, but they also took pains to be explicit about their faith so that people might continue to support them, that they might view them as allies, that they might view them as friends, which is a question people are still asking this day. So... What makes them as equiano and morant what makes them unique in this evangelical calvinistic world? Well, this is where an interesting conversation comes in. Cool? Sorry. There we go. They had a distinctly black or african outlook. So a big concern of africans in this world where christians were the main enslavers in the atlantic passage while we might say they weren't genuinely christian a lot of them or most of them, the reality is that they presented and identified as christians. Black and African Christians, this would be a challenge for them. The people who enslave us, beat us, kill us, they're also Christians and they say that we deserve this. So, a response of many Black and African Christians during this time was to find themselves in the biblical canon. If you say that we're less than human or if you say that we're worthy of mistreatment, if you say that we're not our brothers, not your brothers, let's show you that we are. Let's show you that we're actually in the Bible. So Aquiano, interestingly, he does this by linking his tribe, the Igbo tribe in Nigeria. He does this thing where he cites John Gill, among other biblical scholars, to sort of argue that the Igbo tribe is actually part of the lost Israelite tribe. So it's really this historical imagination tied in with this view of providence. Anyway, that's one way they do it. But the main way they do that, by bringing it back to the title, Is by constantly, you'll see this across black evangelicals, black Calvinists throughout the 18th and 19th century, is that they understand themselves, African evangelicals, black Christians to be a fulfillment of prophecy. So if you see there, Psalm 68, 31, princes shall come out of Egypt, Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Ethiopia understood at that time to be Africa as a whole. These black Christians back then, they viewed themselves saying, hey, you want to tear us down? You don't want to view us as brothers? How dare you? You're opposing God because God said that we would be here, that we are now Ethiopia stretching out our hands unto God. We are the fulfillment of this prophecy. We're in the biblical text. You can't ignore us. You can't keep us down. Building on that is the Ethiopian eunuch. You know the story. Philip Uh, going out into the wilderness, coming across the Ethiopian eunuch, studying the Old Testament prophecies and needing help. Philip helps him, and then the Ethiopian eunuch wants to be baptized, and bada bing, bada boom, end of story, everyone's happy. Philip baptizes the guy, it's all good. According to tradition, this Ethiopian eunuch becomes a big player. He goes back to his kingdom, and that's the traditional understandings of the origins of the, the Nubian and Ethiopian churches so these guys are looking at this story and saying, hey, that's, that's me in the biblical text. I'm one of those guys. I'm that baptized Ethiopian eunuch who has great things in store for him. So it's here where I argue that from this outlook, as we look at people like Morant, as we look at people like Equiano, these evangelical Calvinists, that they develop what we might call a proto-Ethiopianism. So for those who don't know, Ethiopianism was this idea of the back to Africa movement where black people, you'll see this in, so you might know Malcolm X or Marcus Garvey. So those kind of revolutionary figures an idea of Africa belonging to Africans and Africans should be for Africans. And we see this among these black evangelicals. So I have the quotes on uh, on screen, but I'll let you read those. Both Equiano and Morant as Calvinistic evangelicals strongly and firmly rooted in the tradition of Whitfield and Edwards they had africans front and center in their vision both of them it became their foundational goals to head back to africa and to and, uh, evangelize their fellow africans so Equiano, he wants to work through uh, the the cms's mission to sierra leone and likewise morant wants to go to sierra leone but at the head of a great congregation of freed africans but both of them want to be the Ethiopian eunuch. Both of them were baptized. Both of them were brought up into the faith, miraculously and providentially saved by God. And they want to fill that role of the Ethiopian to go back to Africa and save their people. But this is where I think uh, while many people, especially in the black uh, the black academic space, might hold these men up as great champions of black nationalism or black... Um, Uh, Black separatism, hey, they want to go back to Africa and do their own thing. This is where I think we see how evangelical Calvinism played out in their spirituality and challenges that perception, where I believe we have an inclusive Ethiopianism. So, Morant and Equiano, they are Black evangelicals. They embrace Calvinism thoroughly, wholly. They're teaching that to their readers. They're holding it up as uh, central in their lives with a purpose. But they still want to go back to Africa and save their fellow Africans because they view themselves in the biblical story as the Ethiopian eunuch. But rather than taking that and saying, hey, that's black nationalism, that's putting race above religion, I think both these men slow that down and, and prove by both their words and their deeds that while they were holding a special vision of Africa, that wasn't to the exclusion of the international vision of the New Testament and the scripture as a whole. So I think this quote from Morant is powerful. Let me read that out. I have now, and he's writing to his readers, only to entreat the earnest prayers of all my kind Christian friends, that I may be carried safe there, kept humble, made faithful and successful, that strangers may hear of and run to Christ, that Indian tribes may stretch out their hands to God. I hope you caught that. He's taking that line about Ethiopia stretching out his hands and applying that to indigenous peoples. That the black nations may be made white in the blood of the land. Lamb, that the vast multitudes of hard tongue and of strange speech may learn the language of Canaan and sing the song of Moses and of the Lamb. And anticipating the glorious prospect, may we all with servant hearts and willing tongues sing hallelujah. The kingdoms of the world are become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Amen and amen. It's in this moment that I believe that Morant and Equiano by extension not only do they want to be the Ethiopian, they want to be Philip. And we'll see this if you read their stories you'll see that in both of them. Both Morant and Equiano have amazing evangelistic encounters with indigenous peoples. Equiano attempts to while being on a ship in the middle of the Caribbean Sea while in the watery wilderness, happens to encounter an Indian prince, a high court official, and he tries to win him so that he might in turn go back to his people and win his tribe to Christ. Very much like Philip in the desert, coming across an Ethiopian official who would go back to win his kingdom. Morant, after his conversion, ends up in the wilderness where he's captured by a Cherokee hunter. That Cherokee hunter brings him back to his tribe And Morant, while among the Cherokees, is a bold evangelist, proclaiming the goodness of Christ, or eventually has a ministry stretching across dozens of indigenous villages in New England. Both Morant and Equiano, while trying to be the Ethiopian eunuch, end up becoming Philip. And I think that is a profound story that challenges readings of evangelical Calvinists of uh, African descent during this time, rather than saying, hey, they were just um, uh, largely African nationalists or pan-Africanists who uh, used their faith to uh, survive the, the social challenges of their day. Rather, we see them embracing their African identity for the purpose of finding belonging in the biblical text, but using that African identity not as a way to hide or separate, but rather to include. They turn to the story of the Ethiopian eunuch not just to find themselves in the eunuch, but to find themselves as global, internationally uh, aware evangelists. So it's there where I want to bring this to conclusion. That's a lot of information, but hopefully it's interesting just to hear about these two stories. But I want to just suggest some conclusions or concluding thoughts. So the first thing I want to say is that evangelicals, especially evangelical Calvinists who look up to Whitfield and Edwards, here I am sitting with Edwards and Whitfield's works on my desk behind me, on my bookshelf behind me, we have to grapple with the legacy of slavery. We have to own the fact that both these men, among many others, own slaves. And that's a challenge and that's a barrier to many people. We don't want to overlook that. We don't want to ignore that. That's part of their story. And that's part if we believe that God is sovereign and that he writes our stories before we're even born. That's something we have to take seriously, account for, understand, and seek to learn from learn from positively and negatively. Secondly, what I think we can learn from Equiano and Morant is that there's value in trying to find ourselves in the biblical narrative. While we can do that poorly in the way that Equiano um, abused, I think he intentionally abused John Gill's writing to try to link his Ebo past with lost tribes of Israel. So while we could do that inappropriately, we could also do that in a way that's sensitive to the truth of the biblical text. So, I think it's natural that Equiano and Morant, while they strictly and ethnically and racially identify with the Ethiopian eunuch, while I think that might be a bit hazy, I think they rightly understood that, hey, I can read this text and learn actual practical lessons about my life and find true inspiration for my own situation. And I think that they proved that it doesn't have to be a racial and ethnic thing by representing the fact that they went both to the eunuch and to Philip who reached the eunuch. So I think there's value in saying, where am I in this biblical narrative? And that's really emphasized by Morant and Equiano, who did that with great results. Thirdly, I think there's something to discuss, and Christian nationalism is a big conversation. I'm not thinking about it along those lines. But in the case of Equiano Morant, how do we navigate the lines between spiritual and ethnic and racial kin? Both Equiano Morant, while they were evangelical Calvinists, They openly and unabashedly held Africa in the center of their vision. Both of them wanted to go back to Africa to be the Ethiopian eunuch, and they did that quite vigorously and quite boldly. How does that confuse? And I think that's a conversation when we often talk about Christian nationalism, and the reality is it's often put into conversation with white supremacy and those kind of conversations. But how do Equiano and Morant sort of show the nuance there? These guys were a couple of black dudes, and they're holding up Africa front and center. How does that add to our conversation or challenge it? And in conclusion, conclusion, so I'm a, I'm a good Baptist preacher. I like to have multiple conclusions. But in my final conclusion, I'll leave you with some questions. So first of all, who are our heroes? So here I am. I'm some guy named Chublaka talking to you. I find that it's easier for me to identify with Equiano and Moran. My family's from Barbados, and that's where when Equiano was first taken as a slave, he, he was taken to Barbados. So that, of course, is a place of identity. But I'm also saying this as someone who's reading Edwards' works right on my shelf. So I think that's something where, as evangelical Calvinists or people who identify more broadly with the Reformed tradition here, who are our heroes? Why are they our heroes? Are there other figures who have writings that we should be reading and challenging? Do we have heroes who maybe we shouldn't look up to them as much as we learn more about them? That's a question I just leave for you. And then... Where does our faith come from? So as we're thinking about our churches today and where we find the roots of our tradition in terms of uh, Calvinism, I identify as an evangelical Calvinist. I don't know if you identify as an evangelical Calvinist, but maybe you do. Where does that tradition come from? I would challenge us to think that while we might hold up Whitfield and Edwards as influential and in certain circles more influential were names that we might have forgotten, like Morant and like Equiano. So for me in Canada, Morant was an amazing preacher who changed an entire province through his ministry. Do we know him today or do we recognize how he might have shaped our legacy? I recognize that many of you aren't Canadian, but that's something to think about. And finally, where does our faith lead? So of course, abolition was the big thing on their minds then. But for a lot of evangelicals during that time, their faith didn't lead to abolitionist sympathies. For a lot of them, they necessarily led to abolitionist uh, sympathies and active objectives. So today, as we think about our great and grand social issues, how can we recognize that this has been a perpetual issue that evangelicals and Christians have been facing? While one Christian might view one social issue as the big issue that we have to do, it's our Holocaust, you'll often hear in the abortion conversation, and those challenges where some Christians don't seem as concerned, We recognize that that has been a perennial problem, and we actually have real-life examples to navigate that with. We have church history that gives us direction on how to or how not to approach those disagreements or those difficulties. I think that this is a classic example when you bring in and Equiano, who said, my evangelical Calvinistic faith leads to me writing my story in the context of abolition, while also saying that their theological mentors directly were Whitfield and Edwards who either own slaves or push for the legalization of slavery. That is a complex picture and something I think it shows the difficulty, but also the tremendous nuance and beauty of church history, especially for those of us who identify with either evangelicalism or the reformed tradition in the Atlantic world on either side of the Atlantic. Anyway, that's what I got for you. I hope it was interesting. I hope you got something out of that that might stick or you might want to read more, but Uh, I do have some time for questions if anyone has a question or a comment or any further thoughts, but that's what I got for you. Thanks.